Okay, uh, we're here with uh, teacher Tom, Tom Hobson, a preschool teacher, writer, speaker, artist, and author. Uh, best known, however, for your blog, Teacher Tom's blog, and your first two books, Teacher Tom's first book, and which I have here, <laughs> and Teacher Tom's second book. Um, so your book, actually, I read very recently. I just got it, and I took a picture in the first place summit with a, there's a second one. We haven't got that one yet. <laughs> I took a picture of my inflatable pool in my parents' garden while we're stuck in England reading your book. It got quite a lot of likes on the first place on it, but I'm happy. It's the oh, most good. likes I've ever had on Facebook. Really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hundreds. Um, so we're going to start with a very difficult question. And the first one is, have you been to China before? Yes, I have. I was in uh, Nanjing uh, two or three years ago. I went to, there was a conference of international school uh, educators from Mongolia, China, you know, sort of the region. And uh, I was the keynote speaker. Oh, wow. wow. So we, we didn't know about that, yeah, did we? Yeah, <laughs> we did <laughs> Then again, we've only recently joined a play-based school. Um, mm -hmm before we were in a very academic school, even though we, we both play out. Well, this was an international school that had aspirations to turn at least its early years into a play-based kind of program, and, and which made me feel good because the international schools tend to be sort of models that others like to follow. Yeah, that's true. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your experience in Nanjing, the food, the culture, what you notice about Chinese oh, children. Yeah. I, you know, you know, okay, as an American, right, you get all this propaganda, right? You hear about every single one of the things that I had heard was untrue. Uh, I, you know, the, the, you know, needless to say, the food was outstanding. Uh, I have never been around people who were more friendly and more, uh, I mean, it, it almost was to the point, I'll never forget getting to my hotel and, you know, it was this gigantic hotel. Um, I mean, it was massive. I've never, I don't think I've ever been in a hotel that big before. And it was in, in an area that was, um, everybody was a software company. So everybody in that area is a software company. And I got in at like, you know, two in the morning. So it was like, that was, everything was dead. Everything was empty. But man, that restaurant was still open and it was still just cranking out the food. And, uh, and then the next morning, you know, I had barely slept. I got up, the housekeeping wanted to stop in. I said to her, I, you know, I sort of, I, I don't speak Chinese. And I just kind of in English said, no, I don't need anything right now. Thank you. I've barely been here. And she just, she had to do something for me. She started handing me extra toothpaste, extra toothbrushes, extra washcloths, just extra shampoo, just filled my arms up because she wanted to, she was so generous. I know what you mean. I've, I've been in China 10 years and it's very hard to explain to people outside back in England uh, where I'm from, just how untrue the rumors are and how nice people are. And like people would welcome you in on Chinese New Year Day to their home, which would never happen on Christmas Day here. You know, no one's going right. to say, come in, stranger, from the foreign land. This doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, well, it, always almost felt, it almost felt like being from a foreign country was actually something that, you know, everyone was interested in. They wanted to ask me questions. And I'll tell you one other thing that I just loved, I, and I wish America would do this, is at least there was a couple of places where I went, like restaurants. You'd go to the restaurant, and then, you know, we were seated so we could see the toilets, right? But each, party, each person had their own room. The sinks where people washed their hands were outside. Yeah, so yeah. every single person washed their hands. And I've come back and I've said, they, the Chinese have the cleanest hands, you know, <laughs> in the world because everybody sees you doing it. <laughs> you have to do it because I watch you. That's true. Yeah, all the restaurants are like that. Um, okay, so one thing I want to talk to you about, and what, probably our followers are very interested about, parents and teachers alike, all over the years, 
uh, is cooperative school. That's where you yeah. started in a cooperative school. Very foreign thing here. Like, we don't really have them in China, I don't think. No. Uh, what is a cooperative school? How did you get started in it? Well, you know, the cooperative school. So first of all, a cooperative school, it's a, it's an or, it's a model of early of, of anything. I mean, you can order, organize any business as a cooperative. Um, but it, it is a legal entity where the parents who enroll their children own and operate the school. So legally, the 65 families who enrolled themselves at Woodland Park became for that year the owners of the school. And they were responsible, really responsible. This was not just a, you know, fic this was not a fiction or a metaphor. This was le legally they were the owners of the school and their responsibilities included everything from the administrative work to the financial work, to the marketing and, and enrollment, to janitorial work, to maintenance, gardening, field trip, plan everything that went on in the school other than uh, planning the curriculum. And on top of that, uh, each family owed me um, one day a week, uh, an adult from their family, whether it's a mother, a father, usually it was a mother, but often fathers or grandparent, uh, who would come and work with me in the classroom as my assistant teacher. Uh, so, you know, the, the ratio was incredible, right? With my two-year-old, sometimes we'd have, we'd have 22-year-olds and we'd have 11 adults in the room. And we would all be working with the children. And what I love about this model, uh, there's a lot of things to love about it. Um, as the teacher, I loved it because, you know, I don't know how you feel, but a lot of times if, uh, you know, a parent says, we need to talk, your heart goes up in your throat, yeah. right? And you're just panicked because, oh my God, something's gone bad. Their kids told them something. I'm going to have to explain something. Um, but in the case of a cooperative school, since the parents are working with you on a day-to-day -day basis, they're your colleagues. And they are my bosses. They hire me, they fire me, they evaluate me. But at the same time, um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I supervise the parents. And it's really a beautiful, I think, way to organize a system of any kind because the customers are also the employees, are also the owners, right? So it's, it's a really beautiful kind of system where you find yourself, um, everybody pulling together. Uh, when money is short, it always shows up, right? Because everybody wants their kids to have the best thing, so they find the way to do it. When, uh, when I have these crazy ideas that nobody wants to do, then it doesn't happen because they're not you know, willing to have that for their kids. And so it's a very great self-correcting kind of system. The other piece I love about it is that, you know, every group of children becomes a community of children. If they gather day after day, they become this community. Uh, a cooperative school becomes a community of families. And so it really is the families. And usually when we would sit down, you know, once a month we sit down and we do kind of, uh, we call it a parent meeting, but it's, a, it's basically the business of the school where we sit down together, all, all, you know, all of us together and we talk about the business of running the school and what's happening and sharing ideas and, and challenges and all that. Um, and almost never does, does anyone speak of it as a school. Everyone always talks about our community, the Woodland Park community, which is really quite beautiful, I think. And I think it's necessary in this day and age when we've lost our villages. You know, when we've lost our, our you know, because it takes a village to raise a child, as the African proverb says. And it's true. You know, we grew up, you know, our, humans have evolved out of the hunter-gatherer past. These, you know, for 97% of our existence, we lived in these small closely related groups of individuals from 20 to 100 people sharing a, kind of a common um, a common community, a common goal. And, and child rearing was not one person's job. It wasn't just the mom's job or just the father's job. It was the community's job. It was everyone, grandparents, older siblings, everybody else. 
And that's kind of the model that, to me, that's what that, this model does, is it kind of brings the best of that sort of hunter-gatherer past, that small village, neighborhood, whatever else we, we used to have, you know, because in our world today, right, if you think about it, we wake up in the morning and we take all the adults and we put them in this place that we call work and they're segregated. And we put all the children in this place we call school and they're segregated. And then we put all the, um, you know, the, the, we even go so far as to put the seniors, you know, in, in, in nursing homes and senior centers where they're segregated. And, and, you know, people always want to say, well, what happened? Everybody seems disconnected and animosity towards everyone. Well, I think a lot of it is we've, we've, we've lost that village. We've lost that opportunity for everybody to get together um, and to learn from each other and to, you know, really live out in the open together. So that's kind of what a, a cooperative is in a nutshell. So it is very interesting and very new concept to like Chinese culture. Because like we, I can say like most of the Chinese school, they like try to like stop parents by the gate. If they say goodbye to your child, we will take the kids into the classroom. And then when parents pick up the children, we will take the children to a gather place and then let the parents pick them up. But we right. always want that to invite our parents to go into the classroom, to look around the classroom environment or do more activities with the uh, children. But it's kind of very difficult but because all the school have the policy that like people or parents cannot enter the school unless mm -hmm. they apply in advance that, oh, I have a activity with the children. Can I come in? So it's like right. so difficult for them to come in to communicate with teacher and children. Yeah. yeah. And also lots of teachers don't want to have. Yeah, true. We're, we're, yeah. we're very pro parents coming in the class, yeah. but lots of teachers know they're going to interfere with the learning yeah. when but I think well, you I don't know. I don't know how other people, how anybody else does it. Right. I mean, it's, you know, there's all those kids. What I love is if a child's crying, there's always a mommy, you know, a lap that you can sit on. There's a shoulder you can cry on. There's a grandma there who can pick them up and take care of them. And they don't necessarily just take care of their own kids. And what I really love, and this is the piece, this is the argument, the best argument for me for bringing the parents into the classroom is that every parent, right? Every parent you've ever met knows their child's a genius, don't they? Mm -hmm. Right. They always know that. Yeah. And, 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 when they come in, and, but they also know, right? And every parent is also afraid, right? They're a little bit worried because they, they feel like their child's behind in some area. So maybe they're walking already, but they haven't spoken a word yet or something. And they're all, it's in the, and they might not tell you about that. They'll tell you about your child, the child's genius, right? You know, Sally can count to, a, count to 500 or Johnny does the ABCs. And um, what I love is once the parents are in the classroom, they come in and what they get to see is right away, they get to see that they're right. Their kid is a genius. Their kid actually has aptitudes in some area or other that are far superior than the other children that are advanced, that you know, make them proud. And the, but at the same time, they get to see that you know, it's also true that every single child in that room is a genius. And it opens up their minds to what normal is. And they see, yeah, well, my kid might be a little behind in that, but so is that kid, so is that kid. They get to see what normal is. And I think if we can take um, parent, parental fear out of children's lives and their, their insecurities out of children's lives, that will be one of the greatest things we can do to enhance uh, life for young children. Well, the parental fears is a big deal because that's the reason why we're losing play. So many parents, they want their kids to do, oh, they want them to start reading in three, four years old and start doing the math. So I, I guess the next question would be, uh, when you picked the cooperative school for your uh, daughter, um, was that a difficult choice or was it, I know, I want 
a play-based education for my child? Or did you ever think, actually, maybe I want to send her to the school where they're going to teach her the alphabet very early? I, you know, I never thought that. Um, but it was, it was the simplest decision in the world because, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be one of these parents. Who, you know, I wasn't a teacher when my daughter was born. I was a freelance writer. And the decision was made that my wife would keep working and I was going to be the stay-at-home parent. And, and um, you know, when my daughter got to be around two years old, I said, well, you know, should we start, in, start going to preschool or something like that? And my wife said, no, why would she go to preschool? She's got you at home with her. <laughs> and then I, and then I, and then I said, well, I'm going to go, you know, try to go over my wife's head. And I talked to my mom and my mom said, no, your daughter has you at home. You don't have to, you don't have to go to preschool. And so then I said, I'm going to go to the big cheese. And I went and talked to my mother-in-law and she said the same thing. No, she's lucky enough to have a stay-at-home parent stay home with her. And um, it's, it was o the only reason we could go to a cooperative school was because I got to go to school with her. And when, once I, I, I ran that idea by the triumvirate of powerful women in my life, they all said, uh, they said, okay, she can go do that. Um, you can go to preschool as long as you go with her every day. And so that's really what made me, you know, interested in early childhood and what got made me a teacher is I spent three years going to school, preschool with my child. And, uh, I think um, for most parents in China, they don't have that option. We don't have cooperative schools. Uh, mm -hmm. We're very lucky. We just moved to a Reggio-inspired school. We've been there for half a year now. The rest of the half year, we've been in <laughs> lockdown in the UK because we got yeah. separated outside yeah. of China. But we're lucky. But, um, parents still struggle with the Reggio-inspired, being yeah. emerging curriculum, following yeah. children's interest in, understanding how they're learning. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem is us too. Like We have to do better at showing what they're learning by themselves so the parents understand it more but as a parent what would you and a teacher what would you suggest if they're looking for a school what are the kind of key signs to look for when they're going around picking a school for their three-year-old okay well i'll get to that in one second the first thing i want to say is what you're talking about basically most of the fear that parents feel that you're talking about is the fear their child will fall behind that's the fear, is that somehow my child will fall behind and be left behind. Well, the first thing I talk to parents about is, is the fact that there is no such thing as falling behind when you're, you know, in, in the, the preschool years. When you are below five or six years old, there is no way to be behind. It's not possible. There's too much to learn to be behind. And children develop and learn in such spiky ways that each one of them is going to become their genius in their own area and pursue that. Um, what, I'm sorry, what was, that? what was the part of the question? What was the actual question you asked me? And the second part, so if, if parents are going around, we have a lot of choice in China. We've got oh. American schools, UK schools, Canadian schools, IB schools, IB schools Reggio, Montessori, Waldorf, uh, even yeah, well, forest schools now. Uh, what yeah. would you say is like, you know, when you go into a school, these are the danger signs and these are the, mm -hmm. you know, this is, could be a place that's right for you. I'd like to take it back a little farther. I, you know, what I like yeah. to talk to parents about, and anybody who's a doubter about play-based education and self-directed learning for young children, I like to try to take them back to their own childhoods. I like yeah. to try to find a moment where you can talk to them about, you know, what was it like? Um, what, 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 what was your fate? Think of a moment, a moment that you were joyful. One of the great moments from your childhood. What's one of your earliest memories that you think of fondly where it was just, a, you know, one of those peak moments of your childhood? And invariably, they'll start talking about um, being somewhere that's outside, typically. Um, typically, they don't, it's never in school. They never talk about it being in school. They talk about, they usually talk about being outside. They usually talk about being unsupervised. 
You know, these moments, even as a very young child, when there isn't an adult hovering over you, they usually talk about um, being with other children. Typically, it involves, you know, other kids of all ages. Usually, it involves some activity where there's no beginning, middle, or an end. There's no schedule to it. It was sort of just a, a, a time where, where time seemed endless. And rarely does it involve toys. It almost never involves stuff or curriculum or toys or anything like that. Usually, it just involves engaging with the real world. And from there, then, you know, once you get them, you see them glow, right? You see these, you see these adults grow, you see these people glow and you say, you know, you say to yourself, you know, that's what I want for your child. I want your child to have that same kind of experience because children today aren't getting that kind of experience anywhere else, right? They're under supervision pretty much from the moment they're born until the moment they, you know, until they're a teenager or something. And they don't get the opportunity to have those experiences of being uh, kind of free, to be a child and to explore the world the way they want to. Yeah, well. Uh, what I tell people, if they're looking for a school that they, um, you know, for their child, number one, uh, number one tip I have is talk to the parents of other children in that school. Yeah, yeah. Talk to those people that, you know, the educators are great, they're wonderful, you know, chat with them a little bit, make sure you, you're okay with them. But it's the other parents who are going to be the people who will give you the insights from a parent's perspective. And if you find yourself talking to these parents and you're finding out, I don't like any of these people, that's the wrong place for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that sounds like a really um, sort of selfish way of doing it, but you know, when children are that young, what you're doing in many cases is putting together sort of a social life for your child, but also for your child. Those other parents are gonna be part of your life um, as the children come over to play and as you get to know them over the years, because hopefully you're there for a period of time, not just one year at a time. The second thing to look for is, is to listen. Listen to the educators, listen to the adults in the environment and listen how they speak to children. Are they doing it respectfully? And by that, I mean, um, are they bossing the kids around? Yeah. You know, come here, sit down, you know, put that away, stop doing that. You know, these kind of things, even if they're saying things like, you know, stop doing that, please. It's still, right it's yeah. still a, they're still commanding the children they're still they're using this language of what i call the language of command which is um sadly um you know research tells us that something like 80 percent of the sentences adults say to children are commands and only people who really work on it can get to that point where they're not doing it i would also look for a place where the children are moving their bodies mm -hmm. where they are they are moving around both inside and outside where the children are having the opportunity to really do big and large motor things. Because people don't understand this, but a lot of that large motor activity, getting that vestibular system organized and everything is literacy. It's organizing the child's body to be able to, to, to get to that and, and the dramatic play they do. That's the other piece to look for. Are there opportunities for children to play pretend? You know, do you hear children saying, let's pretend? You know, and then yeah. start off or, or yeah, or any sentences that begin with the word let's. Because if you hear children starting off with let's, let us, that's an invitation. And that means that they're in an environment where they're free to invite one another to pursue interests together. And so I think those are kind of the things I would, and then I would also look for a place that is not too tidy. <laughs> tidiness is usually a sign that uh, the teachers have an agenda other than the children. Um, tidiness is, you know, I mean, you want it to be clean and you want it to be sanitary and you want it to be, you know, healthy, but you know, tidiness, you know, if there's toys, junks, junk around and, and in fact, you know, we, our playground at Woodland Park, we call it the junkyard playground. 
It is literally, you know, I started looking at uh, schools in the countryside and in the bush in Australia and in forests, and you've mentioned forest schools before, nature schools. And I was so envious because we're just located in the heart of a densely populated city. And, you know, that's, we don't have, you know, we have to get in a car and we have to drive for two hours to get to, you know, something, well, we have parks, but you know what I mean? It's not easy for us to get to. And I started thinking, okay, well, what's the natural habitat for young children in a city? And I realized it's the vacant lot. You know, the place where people just throw their junk and the kids get to go yep. there and nobody, and nobody cares if they yank the grass up or if they, you know, if they, if they decide to try to build something out of shipping crates and, and spare tires and things like that. So for me, it was, it's, that would be another thing to really look for is looking for the, a place where children are free to move things around, where children are free to make their messes uh, and, to, and to engage um, their curiosity and ask and answer their own questions without adults constantly hovering over them, complaining about mess, complaining about risk, complaining about um, courtesy, complaining about all of these things that are adult concerns that we tend to lay on top of kids. And then it just damps down their curiosity, their self-motivation, and really their learning. That takes us on to the next step about risk, risk play. <laughs> you can go. <laughs> so uh, with risk play, um, I see a lot in your book and in your blog, you talk a lot about when the children took risks and how you manage them and how important they are. And your blog's really good at telling a story that really kind of helps you know why it works, why the risk works and why the play works and what the kids are going through. Even if they're arguing, they don't actually get anywhere. I remember the story of the ladder and you said, oh, the second ladder wasn't as good as the first ladder, but it didn't matter because it was the process of working together and taking risks. Uh, can you talk about, because most schools in China, they're very, uh, uniform playgrounds so they got the play structure they got the soft floor and that's really all they have to work with they don't really have the junkyard to work with right yeah and it, and that's a real challenge too because uh um you know a lot of a lot of places you know that nobody knows well in the u.s we think about insuring things right because of liability insurance and so you know but but that is and so one of the things is that insurance companies don't know how to insure a, uh, an adventure style playground you know, a loose part stuff. Like they don't know how to insure it. They know how to insure the kind you just described because they've got actuarial tables and they can do it. And they know how to, how to insure no playground at all, like a big flat piece of asphalt. They don't know how to insure this. So that's, a cha that's one of the challenges and why it's difficult everywhere um, to organize though. Um, but that's another, you put your finger on another one of those parental fears or maybe societal fears is better. The fear of their children getting hurt. Right, because that's what the fear of we're talking about physical risk right here. Although we can also talk about social emotional risk taking as well. It is impossible to define play without talking about risk, and it's impossible to talk about learning without talking about risk. And for me, you know, the physical risk. The way I usually look at it is that it's not my job. It's my job to get rid of the hazards. So if there's rusty nails. You know, I, I've got to throw those away, or broken glass, you know, things that are obviously, that, that there's no play value, they're essentially just there as, as hazards, I'll get rid of those. But if a child is, but, but the thing, something that a child chooses to do for him or herself, that's what I define as risk. And when there's risk, my job isn't to say, be careful. My job isn't to, because that's a command, by the way you know, be careful, all of a sudden you're, and it's a meaningless command. Yes, it's course. one of those what things. What am I being careful of? Exactly. What <laughs> am I being careful of? And, and they, you know what the truth is, is they're already being careful, right? They're already um, 
they're already doing the best because nobody wants to get hurt. Young children already, now there may be things that they don't see that you see, but instead of bossing around or forbidding them, what I like to do is put my body close. You know, if it makes me nervous, then I'll get close and I'll start making informational statements. Like, you know, if you fall from there and land on this hard ground, it will hurt you. Because I, or I'll say, you know, that stick I see poking out right there could poke you in the eye. Or, you know, if that rope gets wrapped around your neck, you won't be able to breathe. And I say, I, I, instead of saying, be careful of things, I give them concrete things for them to think about. To me, I think of languages like a loose part. Adult language should be, it's something for them to think. They probably already thought about a lot of these things, like, yes, it would hurt if I fell. Um, and that type of thing. So what I try to do is I try to just give them information to help them. And then when they, and, and the other piece is I don't help them physically. If a child is struggling to get up on something and they say, help me, I always say, I won't help you, but I won't let you get hurt. So I get close. But if they can't climb to the place they're trying to climb on their own, they have no business being there. Right? And so, yeah. um, and so, so to me, and the, what, what children learn from risk-taking is really, I should comfort parents and should comfort people who are afraid because the reason we need to allow children to take the risks that they've chosen for themselves is that that is how they teach themselves to assess their own risk and to make, their, make good decisions going forward in the future. Children who've never been allowed um, to assess their own risk around pointy corners because everything's padded, or assess their risk about climbing up high because people have always forbidden them from getting up too high. Um, the moment they get out in the real world and they're faced with those kind of risks, they don't know how to assess it themselves. And then they do hurt themselves. And that's usually when there aren't adults watching. You know, because this is one of the things I say, you know, I, I don't, I shouldn't say this probably, but, I, but it's true. Okay, so this falls into the category of true, but maybe not useful. Um, <laughs> But it's very clear that young children are designed to learn through injuries, yeah. right? I mean, they're low to the ground. They don't have far to fall, right? They, their bones are flexible, right? And, and when they fall, it, it's hard to break them. And when they do break their bones, they, they mend remarkably fast. I had one boy a few years ago, a little boy named Jackson. He broke his femur, right? The largest bone in his body during the first month of school, not at school, at home. But he had broken that femur within 30 days. The cast was off and he was running full speed on the playground. I mean, I'm 58. If I break my femur, there's a good chance I'll never walk again, right? That, you know, their teeth grow back. You know, their, their, their skulls when they're born aren't even all the way fused so that when they get a concussion, there's room for their brains to swell without, you know, without getting a concussion, right? When they bump their heads, their brains can swell without getting a concussion. And their skin, you know, it, it heals. I mean, you've seen this. A kid cuts themselves and, 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 you know, sometimes I feel like, I swear, I see it healing while I'm looking at it, <laughs> right? While I'm, you know, washing it off, I actually feel like I see it. It's gone. <laughs> but, and usually it's gone within a day or two when yeah. a child hurts themselves. I mean, you'll say, well, how's that owie doing? And they've kind of forgotten about it. They have short memories. That's another reason. So, you know, it's, and the reason that, that nature or God or however you want to look at it has designed, you know, young humans with this capacity for risk-taking, the capacity to learn through injuries is that so that they will develop the wisdom they need for when they're old and brittle like me, right? So that now I've learned a bunch of lessons and I know things that I can and can't do that I don't want to do that I can or can't. Um, you mentioned that story about the ladder. One of my favorite risk assessment stories about that is 
the girl who wanted to make this ladder, or a girl named Charlotte, she was a daredevil. So we made this ladder that was, I don't know, it was, it was four meters tall. Uh, and we leaned it up against a, a cedar tree. And she just, and she, she went over to this ladder that the kids had built themselves. And, you know, instead of scampering right up like she would in one of those prefab playgrounds that you, got, that you were talking about before, she, um, she went over and she tested Right? She tested because she knew who built this thing. She tested the first rung, tested that she tested each one all the way up. No one had to tell her to do that. She knew it was inherently risky and she, and she climbed all the way to the top. Her feet were, you know, way above my head and I'm just down there with my hands out in case she falls, right? Um, ready to catch her. But then when other kids took the chance, nobody else climbed as high as she did. But every other child took the time to test the rungs on their ladder. And most of the kids went about halfway up because that's as far as they felt safe. One little boy, I'll never forget, he went over and he just stood with his hands holding one of the rungs and his feet flat on the ground. That's as far as he felt safe going. But every one of them was there doing their own personal risk assessment instead of me making this blanket statement, nobody goes to the top because clearly Charlotte could safely go to the top. Whereas this other boy, you know, he didn't know. And that's, that's his decision. I guess that goes towards also to having the parents in the class as well. Um, well yeah, it's, it's wonderful to have the parents there to see this happening because then I can just put my arm around their shoulder. And this is why it's important to have parents around, I think, is I'm, you know, I can say to them, you know, look what your kid's doing right now. And, and then I can talk about, well, what they might be learning from this. Yeah. So you have it in so Yeah, because that is so different because, as I mentioned before, parents cannot go to the school. Yeah. So everything that like, happened a little bit to the children, like they just like paper cut and then a little bit paper cut when parents go back and, and see their children oh my god what's happening what happened to you at school so it means yeah. like such a so, big scene some parents even like oh i want to watch the camera in the classroom to see what's going on so this yeah. made like such difference to let them have a camera i mean it's parents i say that all the time i would love to have had cameras there were there were reasons we didn't but you know i would you know being somebody who's been who's spent my entire career under the watchful eye of the most critical, you know, parents in the world. Um, I would have a camera in the classroom. In fact, that's what I was going to say is take videos of the kids taking risks. You know, yeah. let, let the parents know, show that to the parents. You can put them on Zoom. You can put those videos up on YouTube or something and, and show them. Um, but I think there's a, there's a piece that I want to just say is what I do is I, I do what I call managing the expectations. So in the autumn, when the, when the parents arrive for their first orientation meeting, one of the first things I do is I say to them, expect your child to come home every day covered in paint, in mud, in water, in snot, and blood. And I always say blood. I want them to know that blood is one of the, it, these are called learning injuries. My friend Keisha Reed in, uh, in her uh, discovery, uh, new discovery school in, um, in Maryland, she, she coined that term, learning injuries, and I love it because that's what they are. And so when you do that, and of course, what happens is parents, you know, so you've managed that expectation. They show up to pick up their kid, and you can see them. They check their kid out. They look up and down, and they say, well, you know, I see some mud and paint. Today I win, right? Because there's no blood. And then every once in a while when there's a bandage or something like that, then of course, then the parent, you know, at least is a little more sanguine. They've been warned that that's a, that's a perspective. Um, you know, that's something that might happen. So we do have um, many teachers who, in China, they have a lot of freedom. Uh, not always, they have a strict curriculum, but also a lot of them do have a lot of freedom, but they still follow 
a very kind of rigid, maybe teachers pay teachers curriculum, you know, they print it out, yeah. they're using those things. So what yep. advice would you give to teachers, especially Chinese teachers who are uh, very keen to learn about play-based education from uh, Red Show and Media, for example, uh, where to start? Because a lot of them, they jump into it and it becomes chaos. They don't know how to control it. Yeah. And, but I think you would agree that in a play-based education, it's controlled chaos. There's routines in place within the chaos, within the play. Well, I'd say start small. Start with just a little, you know, with, with little moments, right? It's, you know, one of, the, one of the best things, I mean, I've mentioned loose parts a couple of times. I don't know if, if, you're, if you or your audience are familiar with what loose parts are, but the basic theory behind that, this was an architect back in the 1970s, and honestly, I can't remember his name right now. And he developed this theory of loose parts, uh, which in, in his idea, he was actually talking about museums and places where adults congregate. But he said, you know, we want to empower people to be able to move things around and create things for themselves in spaces. And what that is, how that's been translated into the preschool years is, you know, I talked about my junkyard playground. Well, seriously, there, there was a set of swings, but otherwise there are very few toys out there. It is, you know, old tires from people's cars, shipping pallets, planks of wood, bricks, all of these things. What's great about these things is that toys have a script built into them, right? There's a script already. You know, if a toy, if it's a, if it's a toy wheelbarrow, well, the only way to play with that is to put stuff in it and walk around with it. If you have a toy computer, well, the only thing to do is sit there and tap your, you know, your keys with it. But if suddenly you just have an old tube from something and a brick and some tires, you've got to get creative to put these things together and start you know, creating your own environment. And it's, it's it, in watching children play both alone and in groups with this kind of thing is a great way to really start understanding what play is all about. So what I urge people to do is collect some junk and may choose an hour a day to start with and just say, you know, for an hour, we're going to call it, we're going to call it loose parts or we're going to call it free play or whatever you want to call it and give the children the opportunity to engage with those materials freely. So in best, best place to do it is outside. Go outside and do it because, you know, as adults, we have, we have all these agendas about inside, right? It's got to be tidy. If you spill something, you got to clean it up. You know, you don't break anything inside. But outside, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot more, more easygoing in the outdoors. And so, you know, for me, it's just letting the adults relax and watching the kids engage. You know, I would prefer to see uh, educators um, set aside at least two hours in a sweep for that because that gives children plenty of time to <coughs> get through the bickering. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Because that's, uh, you know, that's an essential part of this kind of play. If play-based education is in any environment when you put some materials out and, and the kids arrive, you know, it takes them about 15, 20 minutes where they just sort of explore the material solo. But then you hit this period of time when they start bumping up against each other. Hey, I was using that. No, no, I would, you knocked my building over you and, and the bickering starts. And you've got to let them get through that bickering, which is about another 15 or 20 minutes because it's after that's their negotiating. That's not a fight. That's how children negotiate with one another. And that's one of the most important skills that we can have. Then they negotiate and then they get to their agreements. They start making agreements with one another. And that's where the beautiful cooperative play starts. So for me, that would be the first step I would encourage educators to do is just find little moments, take it outside, put stuff you don't care about, you know, collect, you know, collect whatever it is you have at home, right? We all have stuff that we can bring in as junk that kids can play with. Yeah. When we, when we started our school in August, September last year, 
boxes coming because it's a new school. We've got boxes yeah. of brand new toys. We're a private school, so we've got lots of nice expensive stuff. Yeah. And we're the ones who are saying, well, leave the box. We want the box. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. box is the good stuff. <laughs> they probably won't play with what's in the box, but they'll play with the box. Um, so one thing I want to talk about next is um, you talked about the bickering and the arguing. Usually when people go play-based, they stop doing it because they they feel like it's it's too chaotic compared to when they yeah. had the reward system, where they had the rainbow chart going up yeah. and down. Oh, mm-hmm. the kids were very well behaved. They always listened to me when I went up and down. But when I just give them freedom, they're just arguing all the time. It's just not yeah. good. Then you talk a lot in your book and your blog about this negotiation. And it, it takes time. It takes a lot of time, days and days and days for that negotiation to build and work and improve. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about why. And to learn their skills at negotiating. I mean, you know, um, you know, we, we were talking before about how parents are worried their children will fall behind. And that the underpinning of all that is everyone wants their child to be successful, right? That's the goal of every parent. We want them to be successful. Now, you know, and I think most of us are wise enough to know that, you know, just making money isn't the only definition of success, yeah. even though I think most people, you know, if given a choice, I'd rather have a lot of money. And, you know, if given a choice, I'd rather my kids make a lot of money. But that shouldn't be the be-all. Because we know there's a lot of very wealthy people who are deeply unhappy. And we know a lot of people who barely have, you know, two pennies to rub together. But they're, um, but they're completely happy. They, they have good relationships with their loved ones. They have plenty of friends. They, they have meaningful work to do every day. They, they, they feel satisfied in their lives and contented. So, and we know that that, I mean, I think most of us, if you asked any parent, that's the kind of success they would wish for their child to live just a contented, happy life with plenty of other people in it. The skill, the, the, the traits, when research is done on these kinds of successful people, they can have all kinds of backgrounds. They can have all kinds of experiences, but the three traits that they tend to have in common, one is they are self-motivated which is what you learn in a play-based curriculum. It's all about being self-motivated. Working well with others, Mm -hmm. which is what children are practicing doing while they're doing that bickering. You know, it's the fighting is, is, is the learning, is the process of figuring this out. And then being personable, being someone other people want to hang out with. Those are the three traits of successful people. And those are the things that are learned through a play-based curriculum. That means there are times during the learning, because, you know, they're, they're just kids. They don't know, you know, about courtesy. They don't know about um, politenesses. They've never, they've, many of them have just stepped out into the world for the first time beyond their families. And, you know, and when you're in, in a family and you're the, you're the baby, you know, everybody around you kind of, kind of gives you what you want for the most part, right? You're just like, I really want to play with that toy. Well, then all the adults are, ho, 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 yes, you can play with it. That doesn't happen with two-year-olds. Right. I mean, with a two year old, it's like, I want to play with that toy that kid has. And if that kid doesn't give it up, then you just take it. And then you have then you have a learning opportunity. Then there's this opportunity for the children to for, for you. I mean, for me, what I do is I step in and I just say, you know, um, you know, look here, your friend is crying now because you took that from them, because sometimes you have to draw that connection for a young child. By the time the children are three years old. What we do is we spend a lot of time with, so we have, you know, once a day we'll have circle time. And that's the only time when I say, you know, everybody, I don't say they must be there. <coughs> Sorry, I have something in my throat today. I feel badly about this. Um, but anyway, you know, usually what we do is we, we get together once a day so we can talk about these kinds of challenges. 
And always, we start the school year, and I've got, like I said, I've got all the parents in the classroom, and I tell the parents, you know, um, we, are, we don't have any rules, because I don't make any adult rules in the classroom. I, none of the adults make any rules other than health and safety rules the law makes us do. But other than that, this is the, it's, just, it's the kids' community, it's the kids' society. And, and I tell the parents, our, our only job is to keep them from killing each other. And always, always within, usually within the first hour, but always within the first day the kids are together, someone says, she hit me. And then that's my opportunity, or she took that from me, or she, she screamed in my ear, or whatever it is, somebody abused the other child in some way. And that's my opportunity to say, oh, you didn't like that, I can tell. Hey, why don't we all agree to not hit each other? And so then, and, and children agree. I mean, they always agree unanimously. Nobody likes to be hit. Okay, let's write this down. And, you know, these are preliterate kids. They can't read it. But I put a big piece of butcher paper on the wall and I write no hitting. And then usually the hands start going up, no taking things from other people, no yelling at people's ears, no, no, uh, no kicking, no biting, no, you know, all the basic things that, because they all know how they want to be treated, at least by the time they're three years old and kind of verbal and able to express this. And what's great about this is that suddenly puts us in a position where the children have made agreements with one another. It's not an adult saying, do this, no hitting, no running inside, no taking things. It's, the, it's their own agreement. So when, when a child does take things, the first thing I can say to them is we all agreed not to take things from each other. So we're going to have to find something else. So I, and my job is to say, I can't let you take that from somebody else because we all agreed not to. Yeah. And so then I can give it back to that child. And so it's not about me. It's not about, about the bad adult doing anything. It's just about these agreements they've made. And it's amazing how the children treat those agreements as sacred when they really see the process and know they're in control of them. In fact, many of them go home and insist that their families run that way too. <laughs> and, and, I, and I've had many families over the years who end up making their own agreements in their families about how to treat each other. And parents always say it's like a miracle. The children suddenly... If they've agreed to it, they're much more likely to adhere to the, the agreement. So, but it's all about that process. And that's what the bickering's all about. Without the bickering, how do they learn? Without practicing negotiating, without making lots of mistakes. And I think that's the other piece of play-based education that people don't understand is that, you know, when you go to a traditional school and it's all about right answers, right? It's all about yeah. the right answers. Everybody's always saying, you know, well, you're, you, you know, they ask a question, everybody raises their hands, they call on a kid, they say, well, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're right. And in, in, in play-based education, it's not about right and wrong answers. It's about actually thinking. It's about the process of thinking. And ultimately, right and wrong answers, <laughs> there's no thinking involved in that. That's just memorizing. I just know what that adult wants me to say. And so then I'll, I'll say it back to them. That's why everybody's talking right now about, oh, all the kids are falling behind now because they've missed, they're missing so much school. They're not falling behind. Anything that they had, they had memorized, you know, four months ago, five months ago, six months ago, if they forgotten about by now, they didn't learn it anyway. Yeah. It wasn't lodged in there. It was just in the temporary storage so they could pass the test or could satisfy the adult. But, but with, 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 Learning, real learning involves thinking. And thinking requires not knowing by pursuing wrong answers, by, by ignoring what's right and pursuing and making lots of mistakes, discovering lots of wrong answers on the process to finding what's right for you. And often what's just right for you in that moment, because six months later, 
you're going to find a different right answer. Yeah. And what's interesting about the rules part, the children making the rules is a lot of teachers might say, well, they won't cover all the rules or uh, they won't uh, cover all the things that are important. But then one of you talk about in your book is how the rules change, come away and go, you get amendments uh, based on what happens throughout the day. Well, and we add to them all the time. I mean, you know, we usually start off with 10 or so uh, the first day, but by the end of the year, there's probably 150 rules the kids have made. They're constantly, you know, every time something happens, I think we should have a rule, no throwing rocks at people. All right. Or the, well, no throwing blocks at people either. Okay. No throwing blocks at people. No throwing sticks at people too. And, you know, you'll end up with this very detailed list. Sometimes that was one time that was a, 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 we talking about rules and this one, um, boy started putting his head right next to a girl's neck and started breathing on her neck yeah and it really <laughs> bothered her and so she recommended the rule no breathing no and breathing. everybody in the class kind of agreed they were like yeah that is annoying <laughs> and so we all agreed no breathing and we tried that rule out for about 10 seconds hey, 10 seconds <laughs> and then everybody realized you know this is, so we changed that back to no breathing on other people um which still became a challenge you know and we and that's part of the i'm going to say part of the fun of it is that you know we constantly are talking about these you know what do they mean it's like somebody says you know one year we had the rule the kids agreed don't do anything to anybody unless they tell you you can do it yeah and it got to the point where kids are saying he looked at me <laughs> and I didn't say he could look at me and so we had to have these discussions about things like that but it's it's Learning how to live in a community, in a society, is the single most important thing young children do. I would argue it's the single most important thing any of us do at any age. Yeah. So what about, let's talk about mixed age. Mixed age mm -hmm. children, mixed age play. And we were speaking to Peter Gray before and uh, talking about his school, the Sudbury um, Valley School that his son mm -hmm. went to and how mixed age it was. Were yeah. your cooperative uh, school, was it mixed age or same age groups? Uh, it was, it was, well, we had times when it was segregated and times when the ages were mixed together. Um, but it, we didn't typically, you know, we enrolled children from two years old up to, up to six years old. And so we did have that age range. And then we were always open door, uh, to siblings. So if, um, you know, if a sibling was out of school for the day or, or a younger sibling, babies and things like that would come in. And of course with the adults, yeah. We make it super, um, with all those adults in the room plus grandparents, we make it super multi-age in that sense. But we tended not to have many teenagers in the room, for example. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they're not going to come to school with their baby brother. Well, we're quite uh, lucky in our school. Our school is mixed age yeah. for the preschool. So the three, four, fives are mixed. Kindergarten, five, six-year-olds, they're separate. Mm -hmm. And then grade one, grade two, blah, blah, blah. And you don't really see that. You only see that you're usually in Montessori schools. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because before we've only taught in same age schools. And then for me, I'm, I, I don't think mixed age is that important as long as they're still mixing outside the classroom. You know, if, if they're in the same age group, it doesn't matter if they're going on the playground and there's still children of different ages to mix with as mm -hmm. long as they're having that exposure all the time. No, I, I mean, I think it's important for them to have a full community, right? That's what, you know, that's always what I'm going to come yeah. back to is, uh, you know, Alfie Cohen, the author, you know, he said, you know, progressive education is marinated in community. And I completely agree with him. Uh, there's just no way that, uh, you know, in bringing people in of all ages, um, you know, what that does is it, it gives children this opportunity to 
um, it expands their world, right? Because if you're only a bunch of two-year-olds together, there's a hothouse for two-year-olds and all the two-year-old concerns and issues. But if there's some three and four and five-year-olds kind of hanging around, you know, suddenly it's those two-year-olds, the ones who are ready, they have a role model to step up for. And the older children, of course, have this opportunity to care and nurture, to bring other children along and, to, and, and, and all of that. So it's, it's, it's actually, it's such an incredible experience. It's such, it goes back to that hunter-gatherer past and all of that. I, you know, if I were really in charge of the world, I think we would all be in, um, you know, we'd put all our children together in big groups of all ages. Yeah. So I think now's a good time to talk about the first play summit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're really excited about it. We've signed up. Most of our colleagues, I think, are signed up too. Can you tell good. us a bit about what's going to happen in it and uh, what's this, what's, what we can expect to see? All right. So the Play First Summit uh, is a free um, online um, gathering of early childhood educators from around the world. And so this is, and you can find it at theplayfirstsummit.com. And uh, we have 20 presenters, including, you mentioned Peter Gray, Lisa Murphy, um, we got people from all over. We've got um, Ms. Ching from Anji Play in China. Uh, we've got speakers from India, from Australia, from New Zealand, from Greece, from Sweden, uh, from Turkey, from kind of all, you know, really around the world, Canada, the U.S. We've got speakers from all over the world. And they're actually, they're not really speaking as much as um, we, we, we've engaged in a series of conversations with each of them. And our idea was, you know, uh, the, really what got this, what the genesis for this was, was uh, as I was talking to my friend Sally Hoy from Fairy Dust Teaching, and we were realizing that, you know, all these uh, governments and policymakers and school boards were making these plans to return to school from the pandemic. And some of the stuff we were hearing about and reading about and actually seeing in some of the places that were opening early just appalled us. Um, you know, I, I'll never forget seeing, and I believe this was a school in Denmark, where they had literally taken and taken chalk and they had drawn big squares on the pavement and each child was being compelled to sit in their square while they were out. And that's, you know, that's what they were doing was they were just the picture they showed them just sitting there. Or I'd see these sterile classrooms of, of preschoolers all sitting at desks in perfect rows and and people were inventing these kind of big hats with swimming pool noodles that, you know, forced distancing. And, and they were talking about having two-year-olds and three-year-olds wearing masks. I mean, you can put a mask on them, but that's not going to be effective. Mm -hmm. But the worst part was, was this physical distancing piece. You cannot, you cannot put young children together with other people and not expect them to touch, to not expect them to hug, to not expect them learning through their full bodies is what they do. So you can you can make the rule, but it's not going to be effective. And so we were sitting and we started thinking, though, and you know what's true is that nowhere did we see instances where early childhood educators had a seat at the table for making these decisions. These decisions were being made literally by healthcare professionals, which, you know, they're experts in healthcare. But we're experts in early years. We're ex experts in education, and they weren't including us. And so it's what, you know, we started, so anyway, we decided, you know, what we need to do is we need to all be talking about this. And so we have, you know, this, this summit, you know, it's the kind of thing that usually people take a year to put together. We've done it in about two yeah, months. It happened really fast and it really quickly uh, came about. It came about very fast. We've got over 50,000 people already signed up and we're expecting close to a hundred thousand by the time it goes live. And what you're going to hear is you're going to hear people, a lot of people saying, you know, telling about what happened in their country. 
Um, you're going to hear a lot of people with ideas and thoughts, and, and um, you're going to hear a lot of politics. You're going to hear people who are outraged. You're going to also hear people who are just completely befuddled and worried and concerned, and, and because all of these things are a real part of what we're going through right now. And our hope is that we can kick off some kind of dialogue that can lead to concrete steps, not just not just to deal with the pandemic, because I think, you know, that's that's actually in many cases, this is almost like an opportunity. Throughout history, moments of great tragedy and upheaval have often led to opportunities to transform for the better. Yeah. And so our sort of our, our, our rallying cry is sort of like, we don't just want a new normal, we want a new better normal. And so our hope is to, is that we can raise the awareness of the value of play-based education and how right now in a time of crisis and a time of tragedy, a time of worldwide upheaval like this, children, the way they deal with things like this is through play. It's how they process information. When 9-11 happened in the US, every preschool in America had kids pretending to fly airplanes into buildings because they had to process this. Mm -hmm. When children, we all know when children have, you know, when their parents are having hard times at home, the kids come into school and they re reenact what they're seeing at home because they need to do it. That's why they do all the dramatic play. That's why, you know, they put on the superhero costume or the princess outfit because they need to process what they're seeing in the world around them. And so what we're, what we're, it's a, if nothing else, we need to be talking about children need to get back to playing before they can get back to school, right? And hopefully in doing this, we're convincing people that maybe that's all children should be doing for the early years at least. Yep. And, you know, as, as Peter Gray would say, you know, kind of that self-directed learning should be lifelong. Exactly. It's a funny story. Uh, my brother's children have gone back to school in England. So my niece is three years old and my nephew's five years old. And they came out the other day to play. Yeah. And then my niece, um, Ayla, kept saying, Mickey, Josh, go wash your hands. <laughs> and then we go wash our hands, come out to play. And then she do, Mickey, Josh, go wash your hands. Go wash your hands before you play with the toys. <laughs> exactly. That's what she's getting at her school all the time. Yeah. Just go wash your hands, go wash your hands. Yeah. All right, uh, Teacher Tom, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you. Oh. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for uh, being persistent. And it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I can't wait to see you again. You, you yeah. too. And All right.